This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 30th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. It was a rare week at the Supreme Court to assess the president's health care law. First, the court had to decide if they could rule on some matters at all. Then they parsed the individual mandate, and then they considered the law's dramatic expansion of Medicaid. Trevor Burris, a legal associate at the Cato Institute, takes a look at what happened and what's next. Weather forecasters have to do live shots outside of a building or out in the snow, for example. They will stick a ruler into the snow to measure the inches of, uh, of, of precipitation. That is not how you measure inches of precipitation, of course, and they know that. And I think a lot of reporters who cover the Supreme Court, TV reporters especially, know better uh, than to draw too many conclusions from an oral argument at the Supreme Court. Um, in this case, we're talking about a highly contentious issue, an issue where pretty much only a couple of votes seem to matter. Is it fair to read this much into the oral argument that uh, occurred at the Supreme Court this week? Well, it depends on what uh, side of the issue you're on. I think that the opponents of the mandate have much more to read into the argument than the proponents of the mandate. And how much the proponents of the mandate, the people who think it's constitutional, uh, particularly the scholars and media types, how much the proponents of the mandate have sort of gone off on the oral arguments to various degrees has been fascinating. And uh, but. Going into it, we didn't really know what would happen as, as, a, as an opponent of the mandate. We didn't know what arguments they were buying, whether or not they were understanding it. Uh, we've, we've been working to make these distinctions and, and to make very, very fine you know, arguments that explain exactly why the Constitution does not authorize this. And it was very heartening uh, to see the court understand those and almost recite them back to us. Uh, the proponents were just astounded that they even understood the arguments, which for many, many months now, it seems like they have been able to understand. On the other side of that, though, uh, broadly speaking, uh, Mr. Varelli, who was the Solicitor General presenting uh, uh, that argument, had to have some help, I guess, from other justices articulating the argument that he was trying to make. Well, the Aren't they understa understanding of the, of the arguments that he was trying to make quite well? I think – well, the the, uh, the justices, the liberal justices who were helping out uh, the Solicitor General, uh, there wasn't a lot of assistance there and there's been a lot of criticism of the Solicitor General and his performance. And some of it's been a little extreme. Uh, it's And I think that he it was – I was a little surprised at how unprepared he actually was, particularly for questions like what is your limiting principle, which as opposed to saying something succinctly and, and shortly, he, uh, he – it sounded like he could have recited any single page from the Federal Register as his little you know, small limiting principle. But Justice Breyer in particular uh, came to the assistance of the Solicitor General many times, uh, sometimes erroneously. Uh, my, one of my favorite moments of Justice Breyer who, who often assists the government in making his case. He sometimes you know, doesn't seem like he's necessarily a justice as much as a secretary of law who's going to be here and tell you about what the law is. And he starts talking about McCulloch versus Maryland and, and very you know, well, didn't we create a bank and McCulloch allowed that to happen and Paul Clement said, uh, that's a different clause, Justice. That's not actually what we're talking about. Uh, so yes, there was assistance and I think that maybe they understood the arguments. Uh, I'm not sure they care, to be honest. I don't think that the liberal justices are too concerned with affirmative limits on Congress's power. 
that is limits about what Congress may do. I think that the liberals in this country – and I, this is just an observation. I think they're more concerned with negative limits on Congress's power like the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. And so it kind of seemed like they didn't really care. In talking with uh, Tim Sandifer who co-authored one of the briefs uh, with you on uh, this uh, the Medicaid issue and trying to draw some sort of limit made it clear that well, look, the, the Supreme Court has never dealt with something uh, uh, this directly before. That is uh, the, perhaps the weakest part of the case for opponents of the individual mandate, for opponents of Obamacare uh, more largely, is asking the court to draw a line somewhere and make it clear that this is – over this line, you do not pass. Uh, you know, do you have any sense of, of how that line could be drawn? I think in the Medicaid expansion, which uh, to remind our listeners, it de dealt with a grant of money to the states and the federal government gives money to the states all the time and asks them to do things in uh, – set up programs and do things if they want to get this money and the states do it a lot. Well, in part of Obamacare, uh, asks states to expand their Medicaid coverage and says you don't have to participate in this but if you don't, the secretary may take away all of your Medicaid funding, all of it, all 45 years of Medicaid funding. And so one of the questions about where was the – is that's coercion because there's an idea that at some point the federal government is coercing people. And uh, the, I, the line arguments are interesting and this has been talked about for many, many decades. Can we draw a line? And it's one of these things where we don't want to draw a ridiculous line like where, the, where we say, well, the line is 10 percent. Uh, that would be too specific. But we also don't want there to not be a line or many people think that there should be a line. I think that the argument offered by Paul Clement, which gave three characteristics of, of why this one, this program, he's not even going to talk about other ones, doesn't work. And it included the individual mandate because the individual mandate uh, affects that Medicaid expansion. And so I think that those three principles uh, give it a pretty discreet situation. I am not optimistic that the court is going to agree with on that. But I think there will be a lot of opinions that try to re-articulate or explain a test or a concept in coercive federal spending that hasn't been very well flushed out, which is actually why I think they took the, the question. But in order for them to uh, draw a line, they have to draw a line that says part of what we've done here is inappropriate, right? They can't, they can't draw a line that's beyond the scope of the question that's being put to them. They can't draw lines beyond the scope, but they, but they want to make a rule that can articulate something for future instances. So they have to look at the, the case in front of them and see if they can abstract principles from that case. So they could say, you know, a, a ruling could say something like, in the event that the federal government conditions a new spending program on the possible elimination of an important, popular, and long-standing program run by the states. I mean, that's not a very I – mean, off the top of my head, it's not a very good legal test, but that's what kind of thing a legal test would look like going forward. But they would try to limit it because they could write a test that would strike down many, many programs that are very popular. We expect a decision quite possibly toward the end of June, though there's no requirement that it occur at that time. Uh, what's going on right now? That's an interesting question. Uh, it is pretty much a, a sure bet that there will be a decision by 
by the end of June, probably June 28th. Uh, very rarely does the court not decide a case before that, before the, the term ends. They want to get everything done with a term and then move on to the next one. But they're not required to, as you pointed out. Uh, and if that went over the next term, it would be another example of something unprecedented that happened in this case. What's going on right now is a the, today actually, uh, Friday, the justices met to do their preliminary voting on what they think the outcome is in each of these cases. And with the four questions altogether, there's a lot of possible interactions of how, for example, the Anti-Injunction Act, which was whether or not they could even hear the suit, uh, if one if one justice thinks that that applies, then how do they deal with the question about actually hearing the merits when they don't think they should be hearing the merits of the suit? And there's all different types of, of things that go together. So they take a vote. The, the way it works generally is if the chief justice is in the majority of the vote, he assigns a decision and who will write the decision. Some people think, and I don't think unjustifiably, that if for example, Chief Justice Roberts would like to strike down the mandate if he is, let's say, in the five. Let's say they voted today and five conservatives all voted to strike down the mandate. He will assign the opinion to himself to write a narrow and very, very clear opinion that explains why they're doing this and to address criticisms of them being you know, conservative and partisan and because he wants to take that on himself because you know, it's his court at the end of the day when people in history say it's the Roberts court. And I think that's very likely. Uh, I am 50-50 but I think if we, if we strike down the mandate, uh, opinion will come from Chief Justice Roberts. And after that, there's going to be a lot of opinion writing and passing them back and forth and seeing who if, – if some justice is on the edge and they might agree to something that uh, would be a little bit different, they pass opinions back and forth. At the end of the day, it's going to be a long and really, really complex opinion that I, may run to 500 pages. We'll see. Trevor Burris is a legal associate at the Cato Institute. You can read our legal briefs and other writings on the Obamacare case at our website, cato.org.